This is Transparency, a podcast by Gender Dysphoria Alliance, hosted by Aaron Kimberly and Aaron Terrell. Each week we'll be joined by people who have personal or professional experience with gender dysphoria and physical transition. We'll also discuss how our trans experiences relate to the concept of gender identity. Join us for a compassionate yet heterodox approach to the question of trans. Kath Lloyd is the daughter of a male-to-female trans parent. In 1987, her dad suddenly announced that he was going to undergo gender reassignment treatment. This was a total shock to the whole family, except for her mom who had known about her dad's gender dysphoria for 10 years. There were no warning signs that Kath remembers. Once Kath finally got through her bereavement process for her dad, she wrote her book, When Dad Became Joan, to support other people going through gender reassignment. And here's our conversation with Kath. All right, welcome back to Transparency. I am Aaron Terrell, joined as always by my co-host Aaron Kimberly, and we have uh, Kath Lloyd uh, joining us today. Um, it's uh, 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 kind of remarkable that we haven't had this perspective on before, and so I'm really grateful that you're here to tell the, the story, Kath, is that you um, you are the daughter of a uh, father who transitioned, um, and so so you've got the yeah the the, the, the transparent uh, uh, experience. So um, uh, thank you very much for uh, for being here. No, thank you for inviting me. It's it's um, really lovely to be here with you guys. I was really happy because you. you had reached out to us with with the to pitch the idea, and I was re- I'm really grateful that you did because it is a perspective that, as Aaron said, we haven't um, touched on in our on our podcast, but I think it's a really important one. So I'm really happy to have you on today. No, thank you. I mean, I saw your um, you know on Instagram and. Um, and I looked at your, your podcasts and at first I wasn't sure whether it would be something that you'd be open to. But I thought, hey, if I don't ask, I don't get, do I? So um, I just I just went for it and um, and you responded. So I was really, really happy. Thank you. And we're glad you did. So I was hoping you could just tell uh, tell that. So obviously you wrote a book about it, and we'll link to the to uh, that book. It's called um, uh, Was it When Dad Became Joan? I, I th- sorry, is that yeah? yeah. That's right. That's okay. right. Right. Um, and uh, unfortunately, I have not read it yet, but I, I definitely am uh, in, intending to do so. But if you could just kind of take us back, like how old were you? What time? Uh, you know, what year was this? Just kind of to set the cultural context of, of that whole uh, yes. event. Yeah. So you could say I wasn't a child. I was 23 years old, more of an adult. Um, and it was 2000, um, sorry, 1987. And, um, you know, my, my dad summons me home. And I was really worried because I thought the last time he summons me home was when I was 18. And he found out that I'd been having sex with my boyfriend. And it was like, <laughs> it was as if I'd killed somebody. <laughs> so I was like, oh, what have I done now? sort of thing and then eventually you know he came into the room and started mumbling away about thoughts and feelings and uh, and then eventually he he just said it he said Kath I've discussed this with your mum and um, I've decided to undergo gender reassignment treatment (laughs) and that was it and I was really really shocked there was no there were no clues, no obvious clues. I mean, when I think back, there might have been clues, but perhaps 
you know, myself and other family members didn't really tap into them. Um, and I was so shocked, I laughed. And until I saw how hurt my dad looked, and then I realised that he was actually deadly serious. And um, I really didn't know what to think. And, you know, back in 1987, um, you know, there was no Mr. Google to, to turn to. I didn't know anybody else's parents who transitioned. It wasn't talked about. You know, when I was younger, there was a, a documentary on the telly about it. And I did wonder why we, you know, why we're watching this, but it was quite interesting. So uh, just duly sat down and watched it. Um, and then it was, well, this is a secret. You can't you can't tell anybody, you know, you can tell your boyfriend who's now my husband, you can tell him, but you can't tell anybody else. And it was a case of, you know, our family is quite a, a group of internal thinkers. And so we were all internally thinking, not really speaking to one another about it. And so that didn't help that there was no communication. And then, you know, the process seemed to progress really quite quickly. My dad wanted to stay, or Joan wanted to stay as as male until my sister got married, because that was on the cards. And then as soon as she got married, then the transition started to, to move quite rapidly. And... You know, when when I came home after that, I wasn't really sure whether I was going to see my dad or I was going to see Joan. Um, and and that made it really, really difficult because my dad, you know, back in the, the 1980s had very alpha male hobbies, um, mountaineering, rock climbing. He did all the gardening, all the DIY, fixed everything, um, ran for fitness, um, and there were no, had a big beard. And so there were no real signs of Joan inside. Um, and so that's what made it very difficult for myself, my sister and other family members to adjust because of that very alpha male looking person who'd been in our lives all of those years. I can imagine very much like a change from a very one person to another kind of deal. Yes. Um, and, and it was, you know, it's a dramatic change. Um, and then of course seeing you know, seeing Joan go through the transition, the operations, the electrolysis, all the years of electrolysis, um all the you know, the voice therapy, and I knew a lot of it was very painful. You know, the operations, the electrolysis was very painful. Um, we did have the press on the doorstep, you know, don't answer the phone, don't open the curtains, you know, this sort of thing. Let us know when you're coming home to, to check that it's okay, that there's nobody on the doorstep. You know, all of these sorts of things that you know, living a private life we'd never experienced before. Um, and so it was, it was culture shock in, in a lot of ways. 
Yeah, I imagine it would have been more, more of a shock, um, just that contrast between, as you described, the alpha male to to this transition. I mean, it, it, I I would think it would <clears throat> perhaps be have been less of a shock if your dad had been an, a highly effeminate man, and and it might have made more sense to you. But it, yeah, it must. Yeah, have been. So, yeah. I mean, a while before, and this is where I say perhaps the warning signs were there, but we hadn't recognized them is that he did have his his nose reduced but it was but you know when i asked it was well it's i've never liked it it is a family trait <laughs> for a large nose and you know i don't like it i've never liked it um i i just want to feel more comfortable about myself and it was sort of okay that makes sense and then but the real big one was the Adam Adam's apple that I really couldn't get my head around the having that made smaller but it's one of those situations you know back in you know the 1980s when you're a teenager how much do you ask your parents something like that and uh, or, or challenge it and we just didn't do that um, my mum had known for 10 years before the rest of us and she was so she was carrying that information on her own for all of those years and I just thought that her with you know withdrawal from social life was you know to do with me and my sister being difficult teenagers perhaps being a pain in the backside like most teenagers are but she was she was protecting herself her husband the children a job her marriage and it was how she she how she dealt with it it was how she could manage but thankfully you know my my parents stayed together as companions and and live the rest of their lives together, which um, was a really really important driving force for us as a family to stay as a unit. You know, I really celebrate that fact because if she decided to leave, it would have changed the whole dynamics of our family entirely. Like a lot of families, that's like it has happened to a lot of families. You said that when you were a teenager, she kind of withdrew into the background. Are you saying that's kind of like around the time that he came out to, or that, 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 yeah, that your dad came out to your mom? Was that, I guess I don't understand, what was, what was the, that impact on her? If it, if it was still private at that time, um, what do you think her understanding of it was or why, why the need to kind of, kind of withdraw? I think she withdrew because... She was, she, I think she was perhaps frightened of people seeing that there was a problem and, but, uh, and being frightened of perhaps saying something out of turn. I mean, she was a very private person anyway, and she didn't really air her issues and problems with people, you know, not even her closest family members. And so, you know, when I was writing my book, I went and spoke to my mum's brother and they had recognised there was a problem, but they didn't know what it was. They didn't know whether it was a health problem or a problem within the marriage. So some people had recognised there was a problem. Um, but again, you know, the majority of the time people don't like to interfere in other people's relationships. 
in their marriages because it you know it's private isn't it unless you want to to open up the conversation so i think she was just being in protective mode and and trying to to look after us all take the burden of looking after us all and keeping us all safe mm -hmm. she kind of knew the public transition was ultimately coming is that is that the case do you think yes but she didn't quite know when it was going to be um and then obviously you know um for my dad joan that it couldn't be held on to any longer because when when my dad was telling me you know he talked a lot about if i don't do something soon um i might do something more drastic to myself and and it was all this sort of conversation before he actually told me that he was going to transition and so you know there was quite a lot of negative thoughts and feelings floating around you know in conversation you know while he was telling me but obviously it was running really really deep and you know he'd he'd lived with these feelings for 45 years so he knew that at the age of five that he was somehow different but obviously at five years old you don't really know what that is do you um and so, you know, I, I, I tend to say my dad became an expert in deception almost from the age of five, covering up his true, true thoughts and feelings. And as you said, there wasn't as, as much known back then about, about these things. And um, yeah, in the 80s, there was starting to, to be more people transitioning, but it was still fairly unknown. How did you and your family make sense of that experience? Like, what did you think um, that trans, trans was? Well, it, uh, you know, my dad, Joan, was able to explain it very, very well. Um, I, I, but I wanted to try and understand it. I wanted to try and understand why the brain was almost playing these games on on somebody. And, and that's when I, I really, really struggled because I just couldn't understand it. And and in the end, I just had to either accept it or not accept it because there was no way I was going to be able to understand how the brain processes all of this. And it was a case of either, well, I lose this person or I don't lose this person. And I didn't want to lose this person, you know, who was my dad and, and was now going to be Joan. And so it was a case of learning how to manage my thought processes so that I could accept it wholeheartedly. But I found it a really difficult process because, you know, for, for one thing, I thought, well, if, you know, if I laughed when my dad told me, how were other going to, how were other people going to respond? And that's what frightened, one of the things that frightened me about talking to anybody about it but then eventually you learn that um you know the majority of people are really understanding and they've they're really flexible and they you know and and accepting and it's just a small minority of people who who go against all of these you know differences in people all of the the diversity 
but it did take me a, a long, long time because of this struggle with trying to understand it fully. Because I thought, well, if I understand it, it'll be easier. But I couldn't understand it, which which made it more difficult in a way. Um, and and then just talking about it, I found really difficult. You know, with with new people that I'd never met before, and. Um, but gradually, uh, I did. I did come to the end of that bereavement cycle of change and loss, and and once I did, then it was a massive relief, a huge relief, and uh, and and I had to really manage it, my my thought processes properly because, um. You know, I ended up being the main carer for both of them for the last five years of their life. And so it was vital that I had to, had to really accept it wholeheartedly with no, with no doubts at all. Was your mum able to reconnect with, with community after the transition? Like, did she stop withdrawing once that step had been made? Or did she continue to withdraw from, from people? No, it what was really, really good is a lot of friends that sort of disappeared came back again, which was really, really nice. And at that stage, I don't really know how that worked because I wasn't, you know, I wasn't, you know, in their pockets, so to speak, so much at that time because I was, you know, organising my own life, having my own children. But, um, yeah, all of those friends came back, which was really, really nice. And, um, you know, there was a strong community, really strong community within the family and in their social life, which was really good. And my mum, you know, managed to embrace some of Joan's um, trans friends as well, which was really nice. And um, because at one stage... As you can probably imagine, she found that really, really difficult. And, um, you know, for, for my mum and maybe a lot of partners who meet before transition, you know, my mum hadn't, when she married, she hadn't signed up for this, you know. And so it was a massive adjustment for, in, in any relationship, a massive adjustment for her. And um, but I think what she found most difficult was that she didn't want to be. She wanted to be seen as a heterosexual and not as a lesbian. And I think that troubled her quite a lot. You said that that after the transition, you found that people were more accepting than not. And so this would be in the late 80s and early 90s. What part of England were you were you in? Because that actually, that I mean, that, that that's kind of a pleasant surprise, really. I would think that there'd be more, um, uh, uh, more of an adverse reaction uh, at that at that time. I mean, yes, there was a, an adverse reaction, and that's why the press were on the doorstep. But you know, talking to people when I was, you know, researching for my book, it was really heartwarming to know how supportive people actually were. And I think that they just found it difficult to 
perhaps talk about it, how to approach the subject and felt awkward rather than them being, mm -hmm. you know, uh, against what was happening. And, and I think as well for a lot of friends, it was adjusting to the situation and being frightened of getting it wrong, being frightened of using the wrong pronoun. Um, but I I tend to tell people who I speak to, well, you know, if you get it wrong, just say you're sorry. And, you know, and and they, the majority of time, they will accept that and you can move on because that's what I found. Even 30 years later, I would still, you know, to Joe and go, oh, dad. <laughs> and then I go, oh, sorry, I'm really sorry. And she go, that's all right. And then we just carry on. We just move on. But I think it can be quite frightening at the beginning to you know, that you worried about getting it wrong. And then, you know, how do you address that you've got it wrong? Do you ignore it or do you just come clean with it and be upfront about it and, and talk about it? Because I don't know how it is in the States, but, you know, we're, we're known for being a little bit more reserved <laughs> here in, in the UK. <laughs> and a yeah. bit frightened of getting it wrong. Yeah, and it sounds it sounds like Joan was fairly gracious about that. You know, if people made made a mistake, that it was just a quick correction and move on. You know, I think that's something that's changed in this in the more recent times is this kind of militant expectation that everyone gets it right and that you can change your pronouns multiple times a day and expect everyone to to keep up. And that I think that's that's really frustrating people, and that that really I think interferes with with relationship if people feel like they can't make a mistake or, or someone's going to be angry yeah and and you know you you use the word can't keep up and and that's how I felt that you know my dad had got a 45 year head start on me and I was finding it really really difficult to catch up and um and it is and it does feel like a catching up process because, and this is probably the same for you, is that you'd spent years and years planning how you wanted to be seen, how you wanted to be heard, what the sorts of things you'd be saying and how you'd be saying it. And suddenly we, mm -hmm. you know, as, as family members of friends, you know, we've suddenly got to jump into that. And and that's why I say, you know, it's a catching up process and we have to catch up really, really quickly. And people make mistakes, don't they? Yeah, it's it's natural um to do that, but then it's how you, you manage that afterwards that's really important. Yeah, and it's it's a well in ingrained habit if you were you know referring to this person as your dad for 20 plus years and now suddenly that's that's changing that's a that's a very well established habit that needs to change and that's gonna that's gonna take time yeah that's right and and i found you know at, at her funeral um with her eulogy i had to address both sides of her life um, because of course, it, you know, in the audience there were a mixture of friends and friends there who had known Joan, you know, all through adulthood, 
through the transition and then there were friends there who had only known her since her transition or going through her transition and 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 also for myself as well and because both parts of her life were just as important to each, each other and it all had to be addressed um and so that was that was really quite tricky but an important thing to have to do um to round to round her life off to the best that i could do before you, uh, when you're describing that that tr transition initially, you were talking about like kind of bereavement and loss. Do you do you feel like did or at the time did it feel like you were losing your dad, or did it feel like this is just a like a change in my dad's life that I need to adjust to, or did it feel very much like you're losing one person and gaining another? I imagine somewhere in between, but yes. Well, yes, I did really because of the drastic change you know from visually um you know tonality wise as well and and that's what i found really quite difficult and, and obviously later <laughs> you could call me a slow learner um that i finally realized that actually you know the conscientiousness was still there the gentleness the kindness um was all still there but we spend so much time looking at the visual cues and the sound cues that it's it's difficult to see the more important stuff um you know their actual personality and um and, and yes and, and of course Joan didn't want to be called dad any longer and I missed calling somebody my dad you know my mum and my dad <laughs> you know this is the dad who you know I'd sit I'd sit on his lap in the evening when I was little you know he'd come home from work have tea sit down for a little bit get the paper out which was massive in those days and I would you know crawl up his legs under the paper to, to sit on his lap um, while he read the paper just to have closeness time and uh, perhaps I felt that they they were gone but I remember you know thinking when my dad was telling me that has has the whole of my dad's life been fake did he did he did he, does he love my mum? Did he really want me and my sister? Which I know sounds a stupid thing to say, you know, because later on I found out that his little brother, who's 13 years younger than him, you know, all he wanted to do was learn how to care for this baby brother. <laughs> so, you know, of course that me and my sister we were desperately wanted, but it was just these initial thoughts and feelings that were coming through, you know, when I was first told how real has life been for him so far, if this is how he's always felt. Did anything emerge after the transition, like from, from did you see anything in Joan 
that was a, a change that you saw as a positive change, you know, did, did, was Joan happier than, than your dad or did anything emerge from Joan's personality that you end up, ended up really liking and appreciating? Oh, there was, there was lots of things. It makes me sound as if I didn't like anything about Joan at all, but, but no, there were lots and lots of things. And the fact that, um, you know, she was so good at you know at being Auntie Joan with my children, with my nephews. And but that is just the part of Joan, my dad's nature as a very caring person. And what was really what was really lovely for me was that when um, she and my mum got their new marriage certificate that I was actually there um, spending a lot of time with them, um, seeing to their affairs and, and things like that. And so I was able to share that with Joan with opening um, her new marriage certificate. And it was just such a private moment that I was allowed to share with her I felt really really honoured um, unfortunately at that time my mum was quite severely um, disabled with Alzheimer's and so really didn't understand what was going on what it was all about um, but it, so for me to be there with Joan while she was opening it she got somebody who could understand and um re respect her decisions you know from all of those years ago and celebrate the fact that she got her new marriage certificate that said Joan on the Joan on it so that was a really really lovely time and Joan never I remember asking her the once do you ever regret transitioning and she just went no so it was the perfect thing for her to do and, you know, I really respect her for that, that she, you know, she went through with it wholeheartedly. And it's just a shame that it had taken her so long to connect with her self-honesty and to and to do that transition. Because it, you know, it does make me sad as well that, you know, all of those years that she struggled with being in the wrong body when she could have had even or you know a lot more better years i'm not saying that she never had any good years as being my dad but you know she could have had way more better happier contented years being joan rather than my dad and that makes me sad was but at least, but at least she transitioned. Yeah, I mean, as a as a as a caring person that, that you describe her, she must have been aware that it was challenging for you and and your mum. Was there anything that you remember her doing to support you through that process that was helpful for you? Yeah, she wanted to talk about it, and she always said. You know, you can come and ask me anything, um, which was good. But 
I really needed to speak to somebody who wasn't connected to it. And um, I didn't really do that until a lot later when I was off work with stress. Um, I eventually went and had some counselling, but it didn't work. It didn't work for me um, because eventually, I think it was on the second appointment, I finally opened up and told the counsellor, you know, what the what the real problem was. And her eyes lit up with glee as if as if it was, oh, great, this is my first transgender client or this is my first client with transgender issues. And that just cut the that just split the relationship between me and the counsellor because I thought this isn't going to work now. Because yeah, you don't want to be she's not in this relationship for the right reason. Yeah. 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 But then I I got my I went on a life coaching course and that's what really helped me because I knew what the problem was. I'd known what the problem was for all of those years. And one, it was admitting it, and then it was working out how to get to where I really wanted to be. And I went on one of those life coaching courses, you know, week two day weekends, like most people do. And uh, you know, when you're training to be a life coach, like a counsellor, you've got to go through the process. And I think I spent most of the weekend in tears. I'm going home. This is, you know, I don't like this. It's too difficult. Like most people do when they're they're struggling with their difficult thoughts and feelings. But I carried on, and that's what really, really got me helped me work out why I was having these thoughts and feelings what benefits were they you know what were the benefits of having them and and how did I want to really be thinking and feeling and working out how to get there and so it was the life coaching that really you know supported me in moving through that bereavement cycle mm-hmm. that again Oh yeah, what was the, the the time frame from the transition to you going on that uh, that uh, life coaching course and kind of working through um, those feelings? So I think it was the early um, early two thousands. I went on the life coaching course, so it took me a long, long time to get there, um, and I haven't looked back. I haven't looked back because. You know what I what I learned from from challenging myself on those thoughts and feelings have now helped me through other difficult times. You know, and and this is what I I say to people is that it's really really difficult, but you've got to. It's a pain barrier that you have to go through, isn't it? And it's really, really important to press through that pain barrier and challenge yourself so that you can learn and understand, you know, what those thoughts and those feelings mean, what the aches and the pains are when you you are really anxious and really stressed so that you recognise the warning signs for when you go through them again and learning good coping strategies some that you use every day and some that you pick up and put down as and when you need them. Um, So, you know, the learning curve is massive, but it it needs to be done if you want to become a better person and be in more control of 
what you're thinking and feeling and how you're reacting to those thoughts and those feelings. Have you ever spoken to anyone that's had a similar experience to yours like from a family member perspective? Yes. Um, not, not formally, but informally, um, which is, has been very good. Um, the other two ladies, the other two ladies were a lot younger than me and um, they you know, their their fathers were showing a lot of signs of femininity, and so it was a lot easier for them. Um, but it's so nice to speak to, you know, wives who are really on board with the transition and really, really supportive. And um, it, it just, it makes me realise how things are improving in the world of diversity um, in the LGBT community to make things. I know there's still a lot of hurdles to to jump over, um, but I really personally, I feel that things are definitely moving in the right direction. Um, but still, we need to be able to talk to people and find the right people to talk to. Um, but what I found from my book is that, um, you know, I've people who are transitioning have approached me because they, they've seen the book that or they've seen me on YouTube and and they've come to me or they've read the book so that they understand their family members a little bit more easily. Uh, and that's been really that's been really heartwarming for me um, because. I thought perhaps they wouldn't want to read it, but they have done, and that's really great. That that is that is really yeah quite inspiring to hear. So you're saying that people who are uh, approaching transition, reading your book, kind of to get a better understanding uh, and a better perspective on what that's going to be like, maybe for their children or their spouse or whomever yeah. is going to be impacted. Okay, yeah, that is really. I find that heartening too, because you know I think. As you're well aware, not all families do survive a, a transition. No. Like it often, I think probably most of the time, I don't know what the stats are, but my impression is most of the time it, it does rip apart families. And I would think that has a lot to do with the relationship that you all had prior to transition, the quality and strength of those relationships and the skills that you all bring to those relationships. You know, if people don't have those relational skills or they're really emotionally distressed and and um, none of us act at our best when we're really distressed and in crisis. Um, but how we navigate and treat each other through that grief and that change and, and all of the complicated emotions that come up, it's easy to imagine how that would rip, rip apart families, right? If, if people don't have the skills to express themselves well and and to maintain the relationships through the, the inevitable crisis that happens through such a big change. Oh, yeah, I totally agree with you. And also, you know, with people who are transitioning later in life, the failed relationships that they've had prior to that, which, again, is to do with communication, isn't it? And not being able to, to open up to, to the partner and explain what the situation is. And... Um, and of course, then it has massive implications on people's confidence, self-esteem, 
levels, doesn't it? Um, in forming new relationships, you know, after after going through failed relationships, so it does. It has massive implications in a, a much broader sense, um, and this is where we all need to learn, isn't it? <laughs> to be able to to communicate and connect more efficiently, more effectively, and feel confident that we can have our voices heard. Well, especially for people transitioning, that they can have their voices heard. Um, but on the... You know, on the other side of things as well, I can understand why partners may or would, um, you know, want to move on um, because it's a massive shift, isn't it, uh, in the dynamics of the relationship and not, and, and like I said before with my mum, she didn't want to be, she wanted to continue to be seen as heterosexual and as far as I'm aware they lived as companions you know in the same house um but for a lot of couples that wouldn't be enough for them and they would miss out on the you know the intimacy the sexual side of of relationships and and find it too difficult not to have that in their lives. Yeah, that's Did, like um, a huge sacrifice. Oh, go on, for, just a, you know, just a, yeah, just acknowledging the huge sacrifice that that would be. Yeah, for some couples. Yeah, that's right. Um, but you know the other, but uh, you know some some relationships that that's happened to that I know they've stayed strong they've they've stayed as a strong relationship but just not together they've stayed strong as parents for the children you know and work well as parents but they just can't work well together as as close partnerships if if you understand what I mean from there um yeah. And so the children have been at the forefront of the drive of the relationship to a certain extent. Did you um, did you notice a shift in uh, when uh, in Jones because um, uh, you, you're saying that your dad was into like rock climbing and running and um, was a you know a DIY and whatnot. Did did Joan adopt different uh, hobbies and and pastimes or did uh, did those stick? They did stick on a slightly less exaggerated level um, and and tried to do a bit more, you know, cooking-wise, things like that. But I think that's where my mum put her foot down and said, no, that's my domain. You're going to have to leave that to me. But, um, no, as as a couple, they, they were both, um, you know, heavily involved in walking, you know, in the hills and in the mountains. So they were able to keep that going. And through the years, Joan did develop slightly different um, hobbies, you know, photography for one. But that was that was really driven as well by 
you know, her love of the walking. And so use that as a way of being able to do a photograph so that, um, you know, then she could use that for her other hobby. And I think it was just her attention to detail, her drive for perfection that helped her with a lot of her hobbies. And, you know, in the local photographic group, she actually did really well for a number of years and won a lot of prizes. Um, but even as a child, you know, her drive for being, you know, coming across as an active athletic boy, again, reaps rewards with, you know, my dad and his brothers winning a lot of, comp you know, sports competitions at school and things like that. Um, and so that, I think, is is a lot to do with personality that that drove this desire to, to perfection and to do, to perform well. Um, which had huge benefits for her. Does that make sense? Have I answered the question? Yeah, yeah, no, no, it does. It does make sense. Yeah, yeah. Also, I imagine age would have something to do with that as well. You know, you don't want to be, uh, uh, yeah, keeping up the dangerous hobbies well into your, you know, sixties and seventies. I mean, some do. Kudos to them, but. Yes, I mean, you know, when when she got a lot older, she wanted to her favourite mountain, Cadaridris in North Wales, and um, she she went up with her brother, and it was a real struggle. I think, um, you know, on the way down, my uncle had to carry both rucksacks and and guide her down, and it was so we're never doing that again. Sorry, <laughs> you'll have to find something different to do. I'm not doing that again. Um, but yeah, her love of the mountains, her love of walking, her love of, you know, just watching films about mountaineering has always been there. The She still loved watching the motor racing and the rugby, um, which isn't, you know, which both, all genders do now. It, it, it isn't, there's no gender there isn't such a big gender gap with a lot of these these hobbies and and things that we enjoy now back you know when she was a child and um, so it makes it a lot easier um for people to transition and still and still do what they love to do i know there's a lot of controversy isn't there around trans um trans people going into their new gender to do their sport i don't know what you feel about that well there are, are some fairness issues you know if someone is is physic has a physical advantage because they're a lot taller and a lot stronger um mm. you know it, it's we can't defy those bio, biological realities so we have to balance you know social inclusiveness inclusive inclusiveness with it's with fairness and and safety mm. But at least, you know, for that's only really with highly competitive, isn't it? You know, for the average person, um, it's a lot easier to be able to continue to enjoy the sports that you like to do. You know, once you transition, thank goodness. Uh, how did you come to the decision to write the book? What inspired 
uh, you to write the book? It was really on the day that I, I got through my bereavement cycle of change and loss. I remember it explicitly, and I talk about it in my book, that I was already, you know, starting to sift through a lot of paperwork at my parents' house, you know, 30 years of mortgage statements and all of those sorts of things that they didn't need anymore. And it was, you know, I was I was having a fire and I was burning a, a lot of signatures and pri very private information. And um, suddenly I, I looked down into the flames and there was my dad's signature on something. And it felt like a cremation. I can feel it, the emotion now in my throat. And it felt like a cremation. And I suddenly had a massive panic that I had to save a signature. And luckily I found, you know, another one of my dad's and my mum's and I folded them up together and put them in my pocket and I just I just wept. And and once I'd finished weeping, I just felt a huge amount of relief and the burden had gone. And and I just thought, you know, if I've been struggling all th through all of these years, how many other people have been struggling as well? And and that's when I started to to write uh, to think about writing. But then it still took me another few years to actually put pen to paper. Um, you know, going through all the imposter syndrome and who wants to who wants to know about this, all of that sort of thing. Um, but then, you know, so I wrote the book in 2017 um but it wasn't until um when was it january 21 2021 and joan was diagnosed with um bladder cancer that um i suddenly got a i suddenly got an email from a lady who had transitioned male to female and she said, I found you on YouTube. I bought your book. It's really, really helpful. It's really, really helped me. And then the week that Joan died, I had another email of somebody saying, I've just read your book. It's This has been so helpful to me. Thank you. That I realized that I really need to press this. I nearly, I really need to work harder at helping other people to manage big change in their life, you know, because... If I struggled, how many other people are struggling? Not just with, not with just with um, gender issues, but all sorts of big change that comes through life, and um, and so that just that feeling of wanting, you know, that that feeling of wanting to support other people drove me to write it. So the first part of the book is really about how I did or didn't manage. Um, you know, it talks about I talk about how I told the children, um, how I managed at work, all of the times that I felt somebody was going to challenge me on why do you talk about your mum and Auntie Joan? 
why do you never talk about your dad? Um, these sorts of things. And then the, the second part of the book is the seven steps to living your new normal. It's the strategies I use to be able to get through it. And so obviously the story is very, very specific, but the seven steps to living your new normal is open to anybody who is wanting to manage big change in their life. It doesn't sound like the system was able to provide you as a family very much support. Am I correct in saying that? Like, is there support that you would you think you would have benefited from as an individual or as a family to help you move through some of those things more quickly? I think quickly? I would have really, I think I would have really benefited from just being able to speak to somebody in the early days who knew how I felt, because. You know, I felt very, I felt very isolated. Um, just like with anybody going through massive change, you feel very, very isolated and and alone and afraid, and you don't know whether your your thoughts and your feelings are normal or abnormal. Um, you know, and you feel feel guilty for thinking these things and ashamed. I felt very guilty and very ashamed about thinking a lot of these things that I was a bad daughter, um, that I didn't deserve this person still in my life. Um, but you know, a lot of it is is a process, is, is automatic thoughts, and you have to learn to accept them acknowledge them and accept them and sit with them um and then you know where do you want to go from there um but one thing i've learned a lot more recently is how to remove the story from that fact and and when you start to do that process you know i mean the fact is tiny isn't it my dad transitions <laughs> But then I built this massive, great big story up about how it had affected me because I'd put myself in victim mode. You know, look at me. Look how it affected me. I don't know anybody else who's been through this. You know, why Why has it happened to our family? Why is my dad transitioning? Why, you know, like I said before, was his life, fake before this and you know uh, and but being able to separate story from the fact the is it means that you can disconnect the emotion from the fact and so that was a that's been a, a massive gain for me even all of these years later and this can be about the argument that you have with your next door neighbour about the boundary line. <laughs> you know, all of, it can be used in any situation, but it's a, a fantastic coping strategy to to use to be able to, you know, get right down to the nitty gritty of 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 what the situation is. It's mm -hmm. a really good point. Uh, you know, it's. It, we all make sense of things through telling our story. So it's a bit of a catch 22. Like we need a certain amount of story just to find meaning in any situation that we're going through, but we have to be really careful that the story that we're creating 
is factual and isn't doesn't have these little distortions in it that are actually compounding the issue and making us feel even worse about it which i think is is what you're describing right that some of the some of the little you know narratives that you had inserted in there about you know feeling like a victim in these various things were making that harder for you yeah that's it and um and and even years later you can still have a lot of emotion attached to it and it, it just means that um you can remove yourself from it and it's uh, the the situation isn't going to change but it just means you can see it for what it is rather than this great big rambling long process that you have developed around it and yes, of course, you're right that, you know, at the very beginning, you've got to make sense, like you say, of the facts and understand the story. But then it's how long do you allow yourself to tell this story and stay in victim mode and create all this emotional pain for yourself and probably for a lot of other people and and being able to separate it out gives you a rest because it's it's tiring isn't it and it, this is what creates a lot of, love, so much anxiety and stress is that the emotional burden that we're putting on ourselves and it just means that you can let it loose and then you can free yourself up for better things in life to think about to feel to enjoy to work towards rather than all of that that's gone in the past that seems very you know broadly applicable to any family going through a, a crisis or a major change or major loss of, of any kind right is is that process that you went through and and how we're telling the, the story internally and what this means for us i mean it, it, families are so entangled with one another in yeah you know, in hopefully healthy ways, but we, especially for, for kids, a lot of our identity is based on who our parents are and, and those family relationships. So when a family goes through a major change like this, the whole family has to reshuffle and change their own identities in some cases. Yeah. Until, but hopefully as, as adults, we, we differentiate ourselves from our parents and the choices that our parents make. But I hear this from families of all kinds, whether it's a kid has an addiction or, you know, and the, the grief that the families go through then the helplessness of the choice that one family member made and the, and the pain that ripples through the whole family. But ultimately we're not, my identity isn't based on the choices that another family member makes. Yeah. That, uh, and, and, and that's the, that's the important thing to remember, isn't it? That, you have no control over other people. You have the control over what you think and feel about about it. And it's understanding that, isn't it? Um, but also it's about us as individual being totally honest with ourselves so that we can hopefully at the end of the day then put our hand up and say i'm sorry if you know if you've made a mistake or even i'm sorry i hurt you but i need i need to do this transition 
to be true to myself mm -hmm. and us being self-honest about how difficult our thoughts and feelings is us being um you know true to ourselves just like you know my dad transitioning to joan was her she was being true to herself and it sounds like your mom stayed true to herself too right that she maintained the boundaries of just because my husband has made this decision doesn't mean that i have to change the fact that i'm a heterosexual woman and the kitchen is mine so hands off like she it sounds like she had very good boundaries <laughs> about those about those things that she doesn't have to change her identity and who she is just because her husband has made this choice yeah I, I think I mean it was obviously exceptionally difficult for her and she had to dig deep I know she had to dig really really deep and really connect with her values and at the end of the day it was well you know I married this person because I I love and I respect them. And so staying with them means that I can continue to love and respect them the way I did when I first met them. And, you know, she taught me, me an awful lot about, you know, the importance of understanding your, your values and using them as a guide to help you. Um through difficult times in your life. And um, it, it, so she was just as an important person. My mum was just as an important person in in my dad's transition as, as Joan was. So that she could, so Joan could live successfully as Joan and still have her family around her. And, you know, and and through COVID, me and my sister were, were able, we were, we were in a situation where we could look after them, keep them in, keep them in their own home all through COVID um, and to end of life, which, um, and that shows the strength of us as, as, as a unit, as a family, that we were able to do that. And and also what was interesting is that we never had any any problems with you know with the care system with the the health system with with um, Jones transgender issues. Everybody was really really good. Everybody was really really respectful. And we we I you know I don't see that side of I never haven't seen that side of things that so many people talk about it's all all been very very positive for us as a family and very very supportive and what was really nice I take them before they got too poorly I take them to a fitness class for for um age UK and I think that some people were there were unsure about my relationship with these two ladies and this one lady suddenly perked up after a few sessions and said and she just asked me outright and I said oh no I said um you know this is my mum and this is my other mum and she, the lady went 
you're so lucky having two mums. <laughs> and that was so lovely. And, well, it just really, and I just went, I know, I am. And uh, and that was the, the level of, you know, respect that, that we had as a, for us as a family. So that was lovely, really, really nice and heartwarming. It's interesting to me how many, because um, so, especially now on, obviously when you went through this experience um, initially, you know, it was very, very rare. Like you're saying, there was nobody to talk to. No one else had gone through this to your knowledge. Well, obviously you knew people had, but you didn't know where they were or how to, uh, to you know, to, to discuss it. Uh, now, obviously there are online forums for every, you know, experience under the sun essentially. And there's all these um uh, certainly forums for uh, people who themselves are embarking on transition. Um, uh, there's plenty for uh, spouses, I mean, like a lot of um, uh, a lot of the, the uh, women who didn't stay with their husbands post-transition, or I'm sure you've encountered this, are referring to themselves as trans widows. And there's like these, uh, so many different like pockets of kind of communities. I'm wondering, is there such a community for um uh, for children of transitioners? Is that something that you're acquainted with or aware of? I, I imagine with like your book being out there that, you know, people in this experience may have reached out to you or you may be kind of in these communities at all. Is that, is that such a thing? I feel like with, with transition being more and more common by the day, there should be like, again, like communities of, of the children of transitioners, but I just never hear uh, that, that perspective. Well, when I was, you know, a few years back, well, not even a few years back, quite recently, I was, you know, I was going on to Facebook groups, for example, and I was actually turned, I was refused um, joining one group because I wasn't transitioning and I wasn't a parent. Mm -hmm. um, and I haven't found one for children. <laughs> so it's quite an interesting point that you brought up. Um, so, no, it isn't there. Um, and it should be there. Um, and I don't really, on some of these Facebook groups, I haven't really seen any conversation from children of trans parents um and so that's a really important point and and this is another reason why i'm starting to talk about it more and more um because just because we're children it doesn't mean to say that we haven't found it difficult um and i actually did a tedx talk back in october around this as well um and i was really surprised at how well received it was at the TEDx talk where I did mine because they all run slightly differently um they did a Q&A at the end so the audience could ask some questions and I had two very interesting questions asked one from female to male transition and then another question from somebody who I think knew had got a friend who was transitioning and all and the questions were both around communication how can how can we communicate with our parents, our family members more easily? What is it that they need to know <laughs> to make it easier for themselves? And so two very, very important questions that were asked. So it just goes to show, you know, that 
we all need to learn about this, about, you know, developing our communication skills and understanding each other and seeing it from other people, other, the other side, the other family member's side. Um, and I know it's difficult for, for everybody involved and it must be tremendously, I really appreciate how difficult it is for people who approach, who are approaching their family for the first time to, to bring the subject up. It must be, it must be heartbreaking to, to have to start the communication process off, but vitally important. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. It's uh, It's been great to meet you and, and just hear about this great resilience um, of your family that they were, you were all able to, to just continue loving each other through you know, the challenges and so thank you for uh, for approaching us in the first place, but thank you for, for coming on and sharing your story with us. And thank you for listening to me um, and reading my message. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you very much. We'll link the Thanks. TED Talk as well to uh, to the liner notes so people can check that out. Oh, lovely. Yes, please. Thank okay. you. <laughs> Thanks, Kath. I'm going to stop recording. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Transparency Podcast. If you enjoy our content, please help out our algorithm by hitting like or subscribe. If you'd like to make a donation, follow the link to our PayPal account. On behalf of the Gender Dysphoria Alliance, thanks for your support.